0: All right, tonight we, I think, are going to finally get to the elements of dispensationalism. I know we kind of ended with a brief look at the gap theory, and I could obviously take Schofield and we could read everything he has to say here about the gap theory and the other scriptures that he uses. Uh, the only reason I would have done that or would even think about doing that is, let's just remind ourselves, as we have started this study on dispensationalism, a major emphasis that I've tried to point out over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again is the whole concept of how theological systems theological systems, really become the hermeneutic. They guide the hermeneutic, they direct the hermeneutic. And in fact, I will go so far, they don't guide and direct. They just become the hermeneutic. And so now you take your system and you read your system into the Bible, meaning that you're doing eisegesis even though you're claiming you're doing exegesis because you're not pulling from the text. You're reading into the text the conclusion that you already have because as a Christian, you're almost always taught a system before you, I mean, rarely as a Christian, when you first become a Christian, does someone pull you aside and say, here are 12 Bible study methods, go and study the Bible. No, they tell you, here's what you're supposed to believe about these things, and here are the commentaries you're supposed to read, and here are the preachers you're supposed to listen to. Well, then, that all you're doing is being given a system, and then you're only listening and hearing and reading that which already con- agrees with. With the system, which just then brings confirmation bias, and then you, the whole thing is just the whole. We've got the whole thing so backwards. So I wanted to demonstrate that. So we we uh, we looked. We uh, pulled out. I think it was eight points, eight hermeneutical points from um, Schofield. In fact, someone made a, a PDF file uh, for me. Uh so that the 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 whole thing there we've we've looked at that. So I could go to the gap theory. I could go to the gap theory and it would be great. I can show you how he quotes from Jeremiah, which we already did, chapter 4, how he quotes from Isaiah, how he quotes from Ezekiel. We can look at those passages and like how can he interpret those passages of having anything to do with the judgment that occurred between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 when the passages are clearly about Judah or Israel or about Babylon. It's like it's, it's a total mess. But it demonstrates that even before he gets to his dispensationalism, he is just as guilty as everyone else is of having an idea and reading the idea into the text right now some people would use that to then throw out his entire system of dispensationalism but i don't care which system you go to i don't care if you go to covenant theology dispensationalism preterism i don't millennialism, lordship you name the system Guess what? Everyone is guilty of doing this to some level. It's just the way we are conditioned. And so, we're all going to use a system. Let's all be honest with that, right? We all use a system. What I'm proposing is that we have to acknowledge the system we're using. And when we do study the text, we try our best to do what? To forget the system and no matter what conclusion we come to, be willing to come to that conclusion, no matter who it offends, right? Now, man, that sound, that doesn't that sound like such a good concept? It does. It does. It sounds like such a great concept. Maybe, maybe someone should be a pastor and try that in a church because I hear it's really successful. Okay, but we're going <laughs> we're going to skip all of that here. And this is what we're going to do. So on a piece of paper, you may want to take a, a line, draw from the top to the bottom break the uh, page into two parts. On one side, put seven dispensations, and on the other side, write eight covenants. Seven dispensations, eight covenants. Because Schofield, in his Bible, traces both. Seven dispensations and eight covenants. Now, how we're going to move through the study Bible and look at everything he has to say about both. Now, some will say, well, why, why look at the covenants? Because, well, we have an entire system out there called covenant theology, right? Where they focus on the covenants, covenants. So we're gonna we're just gonna go ahead and throw this in just because of extra because you know you know you got to get your money's worth but I think it'll it'll be a good comparison looking at both of these concepts not that Schofield is giving us covenant theology but he acknowledges the covenant so we'll see how he handles them and how many he sees and what he does with them and then we'll look at the dispensations now as we go through these a couple of things to remember we ha- we have not. Obviously, gone back and looked at the history or origin of dispensationalism. All right, so let me just make this clear. Dispensationalism did not arise or begin with Schofield. All right, the system is already existing. All right, there's we can debate over the origins of it and we will go back and look at the history of it. We will go back, but for now, I just want to what we're trying to do is just take a journey through Schofield's Bible and his notes just to see how the system is being laid out in the 1917 edition, all right? Um, Because there's a part of me that I could just read the first paragraph and then we could go back to a historical overview. But I don't want to do that because we've started by just working our way through this, have we not? So I think we continue that, then we will revert back to kind of a history. But ultimately... And I think this is very important when it comes to theology. I will at least say this before we jump in here. So many times people argue theology based off how old a doctrine is or how old a teaching is. Because the argument will go something like this: Well, the early church didn't believe that. Right? The early church. And if the early church didn't believe that, then you immediately do what? The argument is you immediately throw it out because we only believe what the early church believes. Right? That's the claim. You got to be careful because when we studied the early church on baptism, I don't care if the early church was baptizing people in the nude, I don't think it's something we're going to adapt, right? Okay? So, like you can you can go on. Just because something, this is very important, just because a theological system is older does not make it correct. Just because a theological system was held by the majority does not mean it's correct. All right, does that make sense? For example, we can go back to early church and find lots of ideas that we would possibly reject, right? I mean, if we go go really back, a common thing in the early church was basically almost trying to create a a merger of church and state in some form of a theocracy, which I would reject outright, right? So older does not mean right, And majority doesn't mean right. How could we prove that the majority doesn't mean right? What could we use to prove that the majority doesn't always mean right? We could use our entire study of the book of Jeremiah. Was Jeremiah ever in the majority? No, he was alone, 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 alone. And all the false prophets and all the priests and all everyone was what? They were on the wrong side. So majority doesn't mean right. And older doesn't mean right. So typically, when people study dispensationalism, guess what they, when they want to criticize it, they'll say, well, this did not start until this year. So clearly, it's not right. Well, that Catholics try to make the same argument, do they not? What, if, if the Bible is the final authority, Then it's irregardless. It doesn't matter at what year someone found a teaching in the Bible, right? It doesn't matter. The issue is, is the teaching In the Bible. If the teaching is in the Bible, we don't care what year they they mentioned it or started publishing about it. It's irrelevant. If the Bible is the authority, the date of it. Now, some will say, well, isn't it weird that nobody discovered it for that long? No, not really if you're using an entire hermeneutic that would would be incapable of even seeing it, right? Many of the early church fathers was using what hermeneutic? The allegorical. So the allegorical is not going to say certain things. Agreed? Okay, so I just think, well, we'll talk more about that, but we'll just, we'll just, just I, that's why I'm not so concerned. I know in a typical teaching of dispensationalism, you would start with doing a historical overview, and I went against that entire way of doing it because I just feel like, let's go to 1917, let's open up a Schofield reference Bible, and let's see how the system is laid out. Then we can worry about the history of it. Is everybody okay with that? All right, so. I've got my Schofield Bible open, all right? Page three, there is the whole gap theory, which we looked at, all right? You turn to page four, okay? We could do a lot here about the word day. We could talk about that. The greater light, we could talk about that. Then you go over to page five, and then you'll notice First, if you look at the center column, if you for anyone listening online who's actually holding a Schofield Bible, some are using digital copies. I don't know if you'll have it, but the center column where he has his references, the first reference is Genesis eleven seven. Don't bother looking it up. Next is Kingdom. He has Old Testament, and then he gives some verses. Then he has uh, Matthew, uh, Mark. Then he has this: the eight covenants. That's why we're going to be talking about the eight covenants, right? Then, if you look over on the page, guess what he has right above Genesis, what uh, chapter is this? Right above Genesis 128. Right above Genesis 128, he has this heading. Everyone ready? The first dispensation, innocency. Right, the first or Edenic covenant conditioned the life of unfallen men. All right, so he mentions the first dispensation, innocency. All right now, this dispensation he has in parentheses Genesis one twenty eight to chapter three verse thirteen. We will outline these in greater detail. I am just showing you. Then he has what he calls the first or the Edenic covenant. That's E D E N I C the Edenic Covenant. And then he has Condition, the Life of Unfallen Men. And then he has Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Now, we're going to take these apart. I just want you to see where how they show up on the page. So immediately, if you're reading your Bible, you immediately are confronted with covenants and dispensations almost at the exact same time. All right? Does everybody understand that? All right, now, If you look down to his notes, you see this. Here we go. Now, you've got, on one hand, dispensations. How many dispensations? Seven. And then over here, how many covenants? Eight. All right. We're going to at least list both. If we don't get anything else done tonight, you're going to leave here with having these both down. You ready? Here we go. First, he's going to give us a definition of a dispensation. You ready? A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. All right, so according to Schofield, what is a dispensation? It is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. I'm, we'll, we'll spend as much time as we need to to make sure everyone has this definition down, right? I'll read it one more time. A dispensation is a period of time which man is tested in respect of obedient, obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Then he goes on to say, seven such dispensations are distinguished in Scripture. All right, that there are seven of them. All right, so let's go through this again. What is a dispensation? Period of time during which man is tested and respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. How many are there? Seven. All right, are you ready to list the seven out? All right, here we go. The first one is innocency. Innocency. This one covers Genesis 128 to chapter 3, verse 13. Genesis 128 to 313. I'm not going to read anything about the, the dispensations right now. We're just going to list them, okay? Is that okay? Everybody all right with that? All right. There's the first one. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip all of his notes here. All right. The other dispensations. You ready for the next one? Conscience. Genesis 3.23. conscience. I'm looking here. I got to go to his notes here. I'm going to go to his notes. All right. He says the second dispensation is conscience and it goes from Genesis three twenty-two to chapter seven, verse 23. I'll give you the full scriptural range that he puts it. All right. 7, All right. Does that make sense? When he when he just breaks them down in a simple way, um, he just gives one scripture. Okay, but when you when you go through the Bible and try to look for them, he gives the, the, the broader range. We'll try to get the broader range on these uh, for for our to try to try make sure our at least our outline here is a relatively decent. Is that okay? All right. So what was the first dispensation? Innocency. Second, conscience. Uh, innocency went from Genesis one twenty eight to chapter three verse. 13. A conscience goes from chapter 3 verse 22 to chapter 7 verse 23. That seems to be an accurate representation of what he has here. All right. Anybody know the third one? The third one is human government. Human government. And it goes from, I'm going to move forward here in my Schofield Bible. The third dispensation, human government, goes from chapter 8, verse 20, to chapter 11, verse 9. All right. Everybody got that? All right, so what's the first one? Innocency, it goes from chapter 1, verse 28, to chapter 3. 13, 13, 313, okay. All right, the second one is conscience goes from 322, 723. Third, human government goes from 820 to 119. Right. so far so good. You got experts yet? All right, okay, here we go. Next, anybody know what the next one is? Promise, promise. Where do you think this one begins? Genesis chapter 12. Yes, the fourth dispensation is promise and it goes from chapter 12 verse 1 to Exodus chapter 19 verse 8. Genesis 12:1 to Exodus 19:8. What is this one called? Promise. All right. So far so good? All right. Anybody know what the next one is? Law very good. The next one is law. The next one is law and it begins in Exodus. I think it begins in chapter 19 verse 8. Yes. The fifth dispensation is law. It goes from Exodus 19:8 to Matthew 27:35. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8 to Matthew 27, 35, law. Now, this is very important because that means a good portion of the gospels, right? It could, this could have a profound impact on how one may interpret some of those passages because those passages actually are, fall under the category of this particular dispensation. So I could give you some examples of how we, it could impact uh, one's hermeneutic, but I won't do that at this moment in time. We will work through them in greater detail as we move on. Right. Yeah. Goes from the, it goes basically from the giving of the law to the cross. The giving of the the giving of the law to the cross. Right. Now everybody got that one. All right. So what are they again? Number one, innocency. Number two. Conscience, number three. Human government, number four. Promise, number five. Law. And guess what the next one is? Grace. Grace. And does anybody know where this one begins? The Gospel of John. I believe... I could have looked, but I I flipped away from that page. So now I have to go from memory here. Uh, I believe it is... I could be completely wrong here. All right, let me flip back. Obviously, my memory is not good. All right, here we go. It goes from, okay, the next one is called grace. And it's supposedly John chapter one, verse 17. But I am missing. Interesting. Because it's not listed as a heading in here like it typically is. It is in the notes, but it's not listed as like you typically would find it. It's, it's really weird. Like all the other ones, you have a clear heading, but this one, there's no heading for it. That's an interesting development, all right? So I guess we're just going to have John one seventeen. It doesn't tell me where it extends to. Like all the other ones, it, it gives us a, a beginning and stopping point. I don't see this one. That is really interesting. All right, so we're just going to put grace, John 1, 17. All right, that's interesting. I don't know why there's a heading for it. Like, what was he thinking here? All the other ones, there's a clear heading. It gives you, uh, it breaks it all down. All right, well, when we get to that one, we'll have to work on it. All right, next, guess what the next one is? No, kingdom. Kingdom, and' I'm going I'm to jump over to see, does he do the same thing for this one? Does he put does he give us back a heading here? I'm very confused why he changed his method here. Yeah, he does the same thing here. It's not mentioned. Weird. Like it's just the headings are gone. Like he gets to these other dispensations and he's like, oh, I'm not going to worry about the headings here. This one is called kingdom and it's Ephesians 1.10, but it doesn't tell me where it ends. Well, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm assuming, they, I, I just don't see how grace would only be cover John one seventeen, right? They would have to cover, and I don't know how kingdom would just go from Ephesians one ten, right? So that's that's odd. Um Yeah, that is is interesting, all right? But we will follow them. We will follow them all the way through and we will read everything he has to say. We'll go from section to section and read all the notes at a later time. Right now, we just want to have them laid out, okay? So everybody got this? So here we go. What are the seven dispensations? Number one, innocency. Uh, We won't even worry about the references right now. Number two, conscience. Number three, human government. Next. Promise next, next, and next, kingdom, all right? That's seven, right? We're not missing any, right? That's seven, okay. Those are the seven dispensations. Now, please note, this is the 1917 edition, correct? I don't have the 1980, the new Schofield uh, reference Bible. I think it was 1983 or whatever year. I don't know if they changed the names of these dispensations, but I know that if you study dispensationalism, they are, some people do not go with the same names for some of these, right? They change it up. And so we can look at the progression of this and we can look at a later time. But what we're trying to do is capture what it looked like in 1917. All right? So those are the seven dispensations. What is a dispensation? Period of time? People are being tested. and respect to obedience to a specific revealed uh, will of God, all right? So we have those. Those are the seven. Now, what do we need to do on the other side of our page? The eight covenants. The eight covenants. Let's see how he lays these out, all right? Are you ready? All right, let me go back to where this all starts. Page five is obviously a key for all of this, okay? Now... The Edenic covenant is the first of the eight great covenants of Scripture. All right. And he has here, hang on, does he list all of these out? He lays out the rest of these covenants. Here we go. So we have the Edenic covenant. Then he has, for the other seven covenants, here we go, the Adamic covenant. Right, you can just write down. I'm not going to give you like a ref uh, uh, going from one point to another. I'm just going to give you specific scriptures for these. the uh, The Edenic covenant, he has listed. Where does he list it first? Um, he has Genesis two. Um, he has eight through seventeen is what he has here. We'll just for that one, you can just place that one there as Genesis two eight through seventeen if you want. The other ones, he's just going to give one verses. We could go look up each one. We may expand it. But right now, I just want you to have the names of it, okay? There's the Edenic covenant. Anybody know what the next covenant is? Look at Genesis 9-1 and see if you can figure out what the next covenant is. We'll do a little bit of biblical exploring to help us out here. Genesis 9-1, tell me what you find. Genesis nine one. All right, this the Noach covenant, right? The Noach covenant. Right, N O A H I C. Right. Yeah. No. Noach. 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 Okay. I, that's how I would say it, right? Genesis nine one. All right, then look at Genesis 15, 18. Yep, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 18. See if you find it, you can look at it, verify, make sure he's not crazy or I'm crazy or anybody else is crazy. All right, there we go. All right, next, look at Exodus nineteen twenty five. Exodus nineteen twenty-five. What do we find? Exodus nineteen twenty-five. All right, he's referring. He, that's the reference he puts here, but he calls it the Mosaic Covenant. So we can just he has nineteen twenty-five. It has to be a misprint. Exodus 19.25, that's what he has. Let's see, I'm going to turn to Exodus 19.25 and see if he follows that through or if he corrects it. Hang on, let me see here. Now remember, this is 1917 edition. So we can't expect everything to be perfect here. Um, well, okay, really, what's weird is... uh. If you actually look in the Bible, okay, so Exodus 1925 reads, so Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. What were you reading? Where did you say to read? Exodus 25. I was reading Genesis. Okay. I I I, I, I was like, I don't know what what is happening here, but but Genesis 1925, Moses went down. So at least Moses is mentioned. Then chapter 20, right? Look at what happens here in the, in the Schofield Bible. Chapter 20, he has a note here. And then he says the uh, the, the fifth or Mosaic covenant. So really it's starting in chapter 20, verse one. So, but he has 1925 and probably he has 1925 for what reason? Moses is mentioned, right? Moses is mentioned. All right. So everyone got that? Now, are we back on the same page? Because that was like, what is going on here? Okay. All right. So far, so good. Okay, now let me go back to all the covenants. Okay, hang on. All right, so we have the Edenic. We have the Adamic. We have the Noic, We have the Abrahamic. We have the Mosaic. And then look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. What? What are you looking at me? Well, I'm emphasizing the right scripture. I don't want it all to go wrong, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 30, not Genesis, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. What do you find in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3? Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. What do we find? Okay, we have a problem again. Okay, so now if you look in the Schofield Bible at the reference, he starts actually in verse one and he says that he has this in his notes. The sixth or the Palestinian covenant and he starts it in uh, Deuteronomy, not Genesis, Deuteronomy chapter 30. So you can put verse one to three, but he, he has it when he lists, lays them out. He calls it the, Pal- the Palestinian covenant and he has the reference Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse three. Now, why is the Palestinian covenant so important? What is, the, what is all of the philological debates about the Palestinian covenant? Nobody knows? Okay, what is the significance with that entire section there in Deuteronomy? What is, that, what is those chapters, like Deuteronomy preceding and even coming after, what are those chapters filled with? Well, there's definitely a lot of talk about land, no question, right? Is this not a section where, I mean, if nobody remembers, is this not a section where do this and you're blessed and do this and you're cursed? Okay, yeah, yeah, this is the, the never-ending, I mean, this is like, this is a major issue in theology, Right? Because this is all about do this or this is going to happen. Do, don't do this. And it's all these, uh, these issues about them doing the, these things. And what's going to happen? If they do the right thing, they will live. If they do the wrong thing, they're going to die. If they do the right thing, they get the land. If they do the wrong thing. They don't get the land, right? Now, why is this so important? Because a lot of people make a big argument here. Did they, did they fulfill this covenant? No. So then the argument is they never get the land. So you're done with them. That's why this covenant is so very, very, very important. But here's the, remember, in covenant, how does covenant theology break the covenants down? We studied this in great detail for like six, six months. How does covenant theology break these down? Covenant theology, remember, some will say there's a covenant of works that happens where? In the garden, right? And then there's a covenant of grace starts where? Genesis three, where he says the, the heels, you're, you're gonna crush the head of the serpent, right? And that this establishes a covenant of grace and that every other covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. This is where I started having problems. Wait a minute, that is, Palestinian covenant is not a covenant of grace in any way, shape or form. In fact, I will say the law, the, covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is that a covenant of grace? Absolutely not. All of these demand what? Obedience. And they fail and they fail. And that's why when you get to Jeremiah and he says, I'm going to make a new, not like the ones I made with your fathers. You can't tell me it's just an administration of a covenant of grace because all the other covenants are seen as covenants that failed. That's why he's making a new one. That that the whole, remember that when I when I was teaching on it, I remember I was standing right here and then I was like, Wait, this makes no sense. And then the whole thing started crumbling in front of us. Right? That Palestinian... And so some try to argue the Palestinian covenant wasn't a covenant. But I think it is a covenant. And I think they did fail. And that's why that's why it's so fascinating when we start reading about the new covenant. What gets mentioned in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant? Land. That is the most fascinating thing to me. Why would you mention land? Because even if they lost the land, even if they got the land, we know they lose it. So if the new covenant makes a promise about land, then that means they never got the land after that. That's then where all of the issues come into play, all right? So I I cannot stress the significance of that one, okay? Now, let me go back here to where we were, all right? How many covenants have we mentioned so far? We've got six, okay. Yeah, look at Second uh, Samuel seven verse sixteen, and tell me what the next one is. The Davidic covenant, Second Samuel seven sixteen. Now, do we need to correct that or add to it? Oh, it was my only fear because when he gives his just one, one scripture. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. All right. So that's a pretty good place to put it. All right. Now, if you actually look in his notes, he actually starts it earlier than that, but that's okay. We, we, can, we can use that for our reference. I just wanted to make sure it was not going to lead to any confusion. All right. So let's go through the covenants again. What's the first one? The Edenic, right? Next. Adenic. Okay. Next. Abrahamic. Mosaic. Palestinian. Davidic. And then what do you think the next one is? And this is where I don't understand. This is where I have a mental, complete mental breakdown with the Schofield Reference Bible. This is where I don't understand. All right? Now I got no problem that the next one is the new covenant. But for the love of bubblegum, you would think he would put which scripture down? Jeremiah 31, right? He doesn't. Oh, well, not in the 1917 edition. Guess what he puts down? You ready? What do you think? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I do not understand why he jumps here, but I'm going to look at it. All right. Okay, I'm going to quote Deuteronomy. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Everybody ready? For finding fault with them, he said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, that is a direct quote from... Jeremiah 31. But why would you not just put it in Jeremiah 31? I do not know why he jumps here to Hebrews. Hey, I'm going to go look at Jeremiah 31 and see if he mentions it. But he, he literally has the heading here, the new covenant is better than the old. Okay, well, I got no problem with that. So I'm going to go back to Jeremiah 31 just to see what he does. And guess what he does? He doesn't mention He doesn't mention the covenant. I mean, he, the text does, but he has no notes. There are no notes. There's no heading. There is literally nothing in Jeremiah 31. There is not a note. There's not a heading. It's almost as if it doesn't exist. I have no idea why he did that. I have no idea why. I have no idea. Now, when we read everything he says about these covenants, then obviously maybe we'll figure it out. But I, I would, I mean, I don't understand. But that's okay. That's okay. It was 1917, right? Right? What did he not have? Computers and editors. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was just doing the best he could. So I'll cut him some slack. But it makes no sense to me. All right? So, now, let's do this. So, let's go through these quickly. What are the seven dispensations? Well, first of all, what is a dispensation? Period of time. People are being tested. And respect to obedience to... A specific revelation of the will of God. All right. What are the seven dispensations? Number one, innocency. Number two, conscience. Number three, human government. Next, promise. Next, law, grace, kingdom. There we go. And then how many covenants? Eight. First one is Adamic. Next, Adamic. Ne- oh, wait. The next one is Adamic. The first one is Adamic. What's the second? Adamic. Okay, all right, all right. I was, I was getting, I was like, wait, did I mess something up here? All right, next Noah or Noah, right? Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, New Covenant. All right, we got those. Now, that is, that is breaking a large portion of Scripture down. Now how does he Now what what should be the obvious question anyone looking at the Schofield Study Bible and 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 again most people who use a study Bible what do they typically do? Do they pay attention to all of this? Yeah yeah I mean a lot of people don't really but it's there. Now the point is whether you pay attention to it it's beginning to like whether you realize it or not this is going to control the hermeneutic, right? Because a lot of people don't pay attention. And then guess what they do? When they're looking at a scripture and they don't understand it, they will look down at their study Bible, not realizing the study Bible's already given you a clue that they are using a system. You've got to be able to identify the system. That's why when you re- get a study Bible, you should do things like, I don't know, read everything in the introductory material, but nobody does. And then they buy into the system. And then when you try to argue with them, they're like, it's right there in the Bible. No, it's in your MacArthur study Bible where you're re- reading MacArthur into the Bible. I, I, like, how can you not see that? But okay. All right. So this is very important. If you look at this part and you actually paid attention to the notes, What question should you have at this point as a good Bible student based on what we've just looked at? We just spent 40 something minutes looking at them. What is the connection between dispensation and the covenants? They line up almost identical in some cases, right? Some of them are very close. In fact, even some of the references he gives are like right in the exact place. So how do they, within these dispensations, there's the covenant. Is a covenant, now now listen, would this not be an interesting thing to consider? Is a covenant part of the test? Because if you go back, if you go back, hang on. If you go back, if you go back, hang on, if I can find it. The Edemic Covenant, the first of the eight great covenants of Scripture, which condition life and salvation and about which all Scriptures crystallizes has seven elements. And then he goes and talks about some of this. But it sounds like in some of these cases that the covenants are really a part of the test. So... We will have to see if that all holds up. The one that wouldn't make sense would be which one? Which one would not make sense as being part of a test? Well, the Abrahamic covenant, because don't we typically say that's a covenant of grace? Right? And obviously the new covenant wouldn't, right? But then you could argue, well, then if a dispensation is always a test, then how does the new covenant fit the... Well, look, like, there's lots of questions you should start formulating right now, right? These are questions you should start formulating and going, wait a minute, I don't, under- I don't, this doesn't make sense, right? Does that- everybody understand? Did you have a question? I was just looking at what's the test there? Is Isn't that Well, you still have a responsibility to do something. Be fruitful, multiply, right? And how- what do they do? Right. They have to be able to, because immediately, what are they going to do? They're going to form a tower, and they're all going to try to stay in one place, right? Okay, so I think there there is a test element to it, at least, I think. So, but we'll have to see. So let's do this, right? So we've listed them out. Now, you can go ahead and make now, you can go to a second page and say the seven dispensations, and let's look at the first one, innocency, and at least read what he has to say about this dispensation, all right? Does that sound good? All right, here we go. All right. Now, uh, he says the first dispensation is innocency. It goes from Genesis 1:28 to chapter 3, verse 13. Now, if we were, you know, if you're in a Bible college or seminary, then you would probably make this a reading assignment for everyone to go home and read Genesis 1, 28, 3, 3, 13. And the next time we're in class, there'll be a test on Genesis one twenty eight to three thirteen to see how well you remember everything in it. But obviously I can't make you do that because nobody would do it. So what I'm going to do here is we're just going to read what he has to say in regards to it. I would like to read all of that, but then if we start expounding it, this series on dispensationalism will end when the last dispensation is over. So let's just... Let's just read this and try to understand it. All right, here, here's the first dispensation as Schofield explains it. Innocency. Man was created in innocency, placed in a perfect environment, subjected to an absolute simple test, and warned of the consequence of disobedience. The woman fell through pride and the man fell deliberately. Right, And the he references 1 Timothy 2.14. Everyone look at 1 Timothy 2.14 really quick. See if we can at least finish this one. Okay, so here we go. This is what he says. I'll read the whole thing. Man was created in innocency, placed in a perfect environment, subjected to an absolutely simple test. Absolutely simple test. And warned of the consequence of disobedience. Everybody got that? Right? Then he says, the woman fell through pride and the man deliberately. First Timothy 2.14 reads, All right, so the so the woman was deceived. He says it's the woman fell through pride, right? You could argue she he, she fell through deceit. Uh, he says the the man fell deliberately, but the text he says doesn't really say that. He was not deceived, right? Now I guess you could argue if he wasn't deceived, he knew what he was doing. All right, so I guess you could get the you could derive the deliberate from that. Okay, I don't know about the pride part for the woman. Okay, but all right. We, we, could, we could talk about that. All right, then here we go. He says, God restored his sinning creatures, but the dispensation of innocency ended in the judgment of expulsion. And he says, look at Genesis 3, 24. Genesis 3, 24. And we read What? All right, so Genesis three twenty four. So he drove out the man, and he placed uh, at the east of the garden the, uh, of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of tr- uh, to keep the way of the tree of life. All right, he says that's where it ends. All right, everybody got that one? Any questions about that one? That one's that one's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Right, man is created innocent. They're given what kind of a test? Absolutely simple test. And warned of the consequence. And then what happens? The woman, he says, fell through pride. You can whether you want to agree or disagree with that. We do know she fell. And then Adam, it does appear that he wasn't, if he wasn't deceived, then he did it deliberately. He did it deliberately. God restored his sinning creatures, but the dispensation of innocency in the judgment of. Uh, ended in the judgment of the expulsion now here's what i'm going to ask here's the theological question right here's the theological question well it is depressing that it was a simple test all right okay yeah they they get well they get impossible okay they they the, yeah they, they could have passed that what's well, the argument could they ever could they have passed the test Right, but I mean, literally, could they pass it? They had no sin nature, but God already knew they were going to fail it. So wasn't it not decreed before the foundations of the world? So which then leads you to all kinds of philosophical problems. of Like, I don't even want to go there because I'll just find myself curled up in a corner with a bottle of Jack Daniels and not know what to do because, I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Like, could they pass it? Everyone's like, well, yes, they could. But God knew they couldn't before he created them. And if he knew before they were created, then they have to do what he knew or his knowledge. I know it just creates all kinds of problems, but they fail. Now, here's the question. I'm just gonna ask this this is just because when you get into these whole things about dispensations, people get into lots of arguments and debates. So I'm just going to pose a hypothetical question. It may not have any bearing on what we're going to do going forward, but I'm going to at least ask it. The way God interacted with the people in this dispensation, does it, not, does it dramatically change after that dispensation ends? Does, it, does something dramatically change after that dispensation? Because it marks a period of time, does it not? All right, from the creation of man to their expulsion from the garden. After that, are there significant changes in everything? What list the changes that mark the end of that dispensation? Just go. Just what start marking the changes that happened at the end of that dispensation? What start, what changes? Okay, death is introduced, right? He literally walked with him in the garden. That seems to change dramatically, right? All right, so we could just say, there seems to be a change in his relation to man to some level, right? Okay, what else changes? The entire environment changes, right? Because everything starts dying and there's gonna be thorns and this, like creation is cursed. What else changes? Death seems to be introduced. And then man is born with a a depraved nature, right? Spiritual death has occurred. I just want you to see from one dispensation to another, a dramatic change took place. Just, I'm not going to say this is going to carry all the way through, but this is a big thing about dispensationalism, right? They try to say that dispensation is different than the next dispensation. Now, in this case, I think this one can be, this one may be the easiest to prove. Once they, are, once they are kicked out of the garden, there's no way to say that things operated anywhere close to the way they operated in the garden. Everything is different. We all have to acknowledge that. Agreed? Okay, that's what I want to just get across and try, and try to do. Now, what, do we have what time? How much time do we have? Okay, we got time, maybe. It's probably a bad idea, but okay. All right, so there's the first dispensation, right? The next dispensation is. What's the next one? Conscience, right? It's in Genesis chapter 3, right? Now, he places the beginning of this one. He he mentions it first, just so that you know. He mentions it first. uh, This is how he does though, in his uh, headings. Right before verse 22 of Genesis 3, 322, which says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And I'll let him put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right above that, he has this. The judgment of the expulsion ends the first dispensation. All right. He has it clearly outlined. Then guess what he puts right above verse 23. The second dispensation, conscience. So he starts this one literally when he lays it out, Genesis 3, to chapter 7, verse 23, right? That's how he breaks it down. I know some, there's some overlap, but that's okay. The overlap is fine. I'm not so worried about if there's overlap. I just want you to see how he outlines it in his Bible. And then guess what he puts here? Here's the second dispensation. I'm just going to read it. The second dispensation is conscience. By disobedience man came to a personal and experimental knowledge of good and evil, of good as obedience, of evil as disobedience to the known will of God. So by disobedience, what does man gain? A personal and experimental knowledge of God, of good, I'm sorry, of good and evil. Of good, as obedience, of evil, as disobedience to the known will of God. Right? Does everybody got that? By disobedience, man came to a personal and experiential knowledge of good and evil. Of good as obedience, of evil as disobedience to the known will of God. Through the knowledge of conscience, through that knowledge, I should say, through that knowledge, conscience awoke. Conscience awakes now through this knowledge. Expelled from Eden and placed under the second or Adamic covenant, man was responsible to do all known good, to abstain from all known evil, and to approach God through sacrifice. Now immediately, what does he connect with this? What did he just connect with this dispensation? The Adamic covenant. Let me read that again. Did everyone miss that part? All right, let me read this again. Here we go. Everybody paying attention? Here we go. Through that knowledge, conscience awoke. Expelled from Eden and placed under the second or Adamic covenant, man was responsible to do all known good, to abstain from all known evil, and to approach God through sacrifice. So what does he connect with? Remember, a dispensation is what? It's a test, right? It's a test. What did he just connect in the second dispensation as the test? The Adamic covenant. All right, you see the connection here? Everybody see the connection? All right, now what does he say here? All right, the result of this second testing of man is stated in Genesis 6, 5. What happens in Genesis 6-5? All right. What, what's the result of test number one and the first dispensation? Failed. What's the result of the second test and the second dispensation? Failure. Right? And then look at what he says here. And the dispensation, the second dispensation, ended in the judgment of the flood. Now he says, this is just an added note. Apparently, the east of the garden, in verse 24 of Genesis, I believe, 3, he says. Uh, apparently the east of the garden where, the cherub- where where were the cherubims and the flame remained the place of worship through the second dispensation. So he says through that entire dispensation, people would come back to where that cherubim was for a place of worship. Now, don't know if that's true, don't know if it's not true, but he just throws that in added. Now, of course, there's a lot of assumptions and presuppositions going on in there, but the main thing, did you have something Okay, right. So, but whether it's true or not, we do know this. We do know this. Can, can well, can we say this? Um, did things change dramatically after the second dispensation? Because where does the second dispensation end? The judgment of the flood, right? Because God makes a promise to do what? Never do that again. So clearly, that's a dramatic change, is it not? Yes? Okay. Everyone should say, yeah, that's a dramatic change. That's a dramatic change. All right. Now, and the second dispensation goes all the way to chapter. Does anybody remember? 723. 7.23, but we'll have to stop there. All right. So now what I want to take from this, what I want to take from this is very important. We've had two dispensations, two tests. Both resulting in failure. The second test is connected to which covenant? The Adamic covenant. That's very important. Okay. Well, I, I haven't I haven't read about the Adamic, but let's go back just quickly and see what he says about that. Right. Now, here we go. This is what he says about it. I did read it briefly. He doesn't go into much detail, but this is what he says about the Edenic Covenant. You ready? The Edenic Covenant, the first of the eight great covenants of Scripture, which condition life and salvation, and about which all Scripture crystallizes, has seven elements. The man and woman in Eden were responsible. Number one... To replenish the earth with a new order, man. Now he says replenish because he believes in the gap theory and that they were to replenish because all the previous people had been killed. So just so that you know what he means there. Number two, to subdue the earth to human uses, to have dominion over uh, animal creation, to eat herbs and fruits, to till and keep the garden, to abstain from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, 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 The penalty was death. All right. So yes, the Edenic the adamic covenant and the adamic covenant both had what connected with them? Test. The dispensation that covers those covenant is the time period, and those time periods have a test, and so both covenants and both dispensations contain a test and a failure. So I know what the, because my argument would be, well, wait a minute. If the covenants mark the same period of time, why do we call them dispensations and covenants? Why separate the two? I don't know why he separates the two, but you can argue, maybe the dispensation is to try to mark out the time of the covenant. I don't know, but you've got the edemic, you've got the edemic. These are two covenants. And what are are in these uh, covenants? Test. The dispensation covers basically the beginning of the end and, and the end of it. And what do both uh, dispensations end with? Jo- or failure, but judgment. Right? So I just want you to see, whether you call it a covenant, whether you call it a dispensation, or whether you separate them, what are the elements? God gives a command, they fail, and judgment ensues. That's... I cannot stress this enough. This is why the covenant theology thing I start having problems with because I don't see, I don't see, oh, there's just one covenant of grace. Give me a break. All these covenants are not covenants of grace. Right? The Adamic is not of grace because it tells you all these things you have to do. The Adamic is not by grace because it tells you things you have to do. In every case, it ends in Failure. Failure, 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 failure. Now, we're going to have to see what happens to some of these covenants, but these we can see clearly the way this is starting to, f- to formulate. Now, this is going to be very important because it's going to make that new covenant stand way out, is it not? It's going to stand way out because that's going to be, because every other one fails. So then is the new different from Abrahamic? This is where, this is where it gets into some theological disputes, Right? Because we typically see the Abrahamic is what kind of a covenant? Of grace. So why then have a new one? But that gets us going down the covenant path. But we've got to try to stay down the dispensational path. But he's he's obviously linking the two together. We're gonna to try to keep the, we're gonna to try to link the two together to see where we end up. But I think can we agree that each one of these dispensations are is clearly marked out with a beginning and an end, and there's no question to say, there's no, I don't think anyone here will disagree, something changes at the end of each one, right? Something dramatically happens, all right? So if we can see that, and why do you think that's important theologically and hermeneutically? Because if this time marks a certain way and a certain aspect, then when you get later, you don't try to interpret or have those expectations of how things happened at that time. That was for a specific time and a specific people. And so now we've got to make sure we don't try to bring that over. Does that make sense? That's going to be the reasons for the dispensations. Now, that can become majorly problematic because you could have some scripture and you may want to pull them over and dispensation, dispensationalism and go, no, whoa, 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 whoa. That scripture is for there, for those people. Then how can you pull it over? Can you not pull it over? That's where the issues could arrive right because hardcore dispensationalists will say the old testament people were not saved by grace they were saved by works that's called ultra dispensationalism right and I can understand because you want to say because get, what what does the old testament seem to be full of over and over and over again do this and you do what live right? Don't do this, you will die. All right. So you can see why some theologians are like, that sounds like a whole lot of works. I think the whole point is, is the Old Testament, no matter which dispensation and no matter which test you give them, they fail, 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 which demonstrates that we have to have a different solution than doing more things because doing never works. And that's where the covenant of grace where God says, I'm going to do because you can't. And that's why we can't look to what we do to prove, because if God does it, then we don't look to ourselves to prove what he has done because he's already done it for us. right? Which leads to the law and gospel distinction. All right, we'll have to stop there. I know it's very, I know it's just very like academic trying to work through that. But if, uh, because if I don't work through it, I could tell everyone get a a Schofield study Bible and just read it, but nobody will ever do the work on these things. So you have to kind of just walk our way through it and then try to make sure we understand it, okay? So far, so good. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Thank Thank you for a place that will allow us to work through these kinds of concepts and difficulties. Lord, I hope that we will try to understand how you have worked in the past, so that we can better understand not only the present, but the future, and that we can understand maybe what is a right way to handle the scripture or a wrong way to handle the scripture. Forgive us for all the times we've handled it in an incorrect way and help us become better at our handling of the scripture and the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,